Hello and welcome to your agenda for the 6th of March 2023. I'm your host, Graham McKay, and I'm joined by the panel. I mean, I think that's all you need to say about them, the panel. Alan Edgar, how are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm looking forward to this. We change up and host. I think it's been coming. Um, so I wish you well. <laughs> I don't, the last time we podded together must have been 24 years ago. Yes, the, the famed Tommy Burns era. We, I mean, I, I don't think many people know, but like the Sonic Convented podcast before they were even before the internet, basically. Kieran Devlin, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, looking forward to this after my last week's absence. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't celebrate uh, my shape baggery being for nothing after the cup final. So I'm looking forward to celebrating my shape baggery at halftime yesterday being for nothing in the end as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, yesterday was quite scary in a number of ways. Alan, how how's your week, your weekend been? Yes, it's been lovely, mate. Um, I enjoyed the Sunday game this week, a nice free Saturday. So um, I went out in town, um, had some food, had a couple of drinks, just a nice, uh, yeah, nice free Saturday. And then the stress came largely within a 45-minute period on Sunday afternoon, which was good to boil it all into um, one half so that was lovely nice weekend all good um, and we're coming into a nice weather now it's actually really bright here in Glasgow as well so um, I'm looking forward to getting out and about this afternoon It's known it's known here in Germany Alan so thanks for rubbing that in You're more than welcome Schnee as Germans call it uh, So Alan obviously you are like a, a weekly go-to guy when it comes to Celtic Park how hard is it nowadays to get to places like how hard is it to get that kind of away ticket? Yeah, it's pretty difficult um, unless you're, you know, unless you're regular within a rotation, um, you know, and, unless your bus has got, um, you know, pretty good numbers, even buses that are maybe 60, 70 people are struggling. Um, St Mirren's a kind of difficult one now as well with the, just the one stand. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult. I think the, I think I've had a rant about it before, the club Celtic thing has really really made it difficult as well which people probably probably be aware of um, it kind of increases your likelihood of obtaining an away ticket with no record um, on the basis that I think you pay about just over 2000 I think it is for a season ticket which is just the way modern football is so it's as competitive as it's ever been um, I think I've been to I think I've been one away this year which was lovely away so unfortunately most of the away games are um, on the TV for me, but you get used to it. It's just one of those things that people have been going for a long time. Um, it's I think it's right and it's fair that they, they get first dibs and tickets. I'm not a complainer, to be honest. It's, it's just the way of things, but I'm not a big fan of the queue skip with the club Celtic thing, but that is, as I say, just the way modern football is, unfortunately. When I was when I was going to the games, obviously it was like uh, you had your, your season ticket and you gave your what were they called? The week kind of like uh, pages? The pictures? Aye, you gave them to the guy running the supporters bus. And I don't think I, I, I never met, I never missed a cup game at Hamden. And I never, like, if I wanted to go to away game, I could go to away game. It just didn't seem to be that kind of level of like competitiveness to get to these games. I mean, what do you think has changed? Um, we're very, very successful nowadays um, which definitely helped I think it did I think most people will, and certainly people that, that have been going to games regularly will flag up when Brendan Rodgers came in the demand for tickets was increased significantly um, so that's a big factor I've never 
I've never had a big away record. Um, having played football Saturday mornings and Sundays for pretty much since I was about eighteen, um, never had the I kind of chose that over away games. So um, it's just one of those things. But since since twenty sixteen, it's extremely difficult um, to you know build any away record on your own. Um, but it's just one of those things. Um, have to try and scratch and claw to get a ticket when you can. And when you go, it's I mean it is fantastic. It's a great experience, especially if you get one of the kind of more glamorous ones. Um, so, yeah, it's what, just what is a glamorous one for you, Alan? Um, I think anywhere that's not immediately in the central belt, um, I would scratch off. Dingwall, glamorous Dingwall. Yeah, <laughs> glamorous Dingwall, Pitodre, Dundee United, um, obviously Rangers, Hearts, Hibs. I'd say they're your better ones. Anything in the central belt, Livy, Motherwell, Kilmarnock, all these ones are, they can, they can be quite forgetful generally. So, speaking of Glory Hunters, Kieran, how was your weekend? It was good. Uh, the glory of the the Roman Empire, because my, my girlfriend and I, we, we went to Northumberland, and she's a big archaeology geek, so we did a lot of Hadrian's Wall and old Roman forts and Iron Age forts and stuff like that. Um, it was ill-timed, because uh, I was trying to use now, now TV on my phone to watch the game yesterday mm-hmm. while she was pointing out the pr- precise mechanics of this three-layer Iron Age fort in the middle of the... the and the 4G isn't great in, um, <laughs> in rural Northumberland, so it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't the best of times. It was a bit of a mess because St. Mirren scored and then I lost connection and I was a bit of a film, film, film mood while I was trying to watch it but also not get hit by a car because we were looking al- along a road for a lot of it. So it was, um, but it, it turned out well. And I also, you know, there's it, also a gorgeous part of the world, which I've, <laughs> it's a bit of, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole there. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a, had a great time. Nice pubs, really nice book uh, bookshop in Anwick as well. For an old train uh, depot, they've turned into, I think it's the, I think it's the biggest secondhand bookshop in the UK. And it's, it's brilliant, really nice. So, and then, yeah, a lot of reading in pubs, some really nice local ales and, some nice, loads of good hikes as well. So I had a great time. So reading in pubs, I'm a, I'm a big fan, but reading in pubs as a couple, how how does that work? Do you just ignore each other for extended periods of time? That's it. That's it precisely. It's it's glorious. It's, it's magic. I can't recommend that enough. <laughs> right. Well, this is the agenda. <laughs> we have a really healthy relationship, despite <laughs> what the past three minutes might have suggested. <laughs> so I just love the idea of a. Uh, uh, your your partner pointing out tech from the past while you're remonstrating at tech from the future not working precisely for you to watch the game. Are we talking about my phone or VAR? Am I right? Oh, look at that. I mean, no, he's a there professional. Was, there was a wee moment where we could have, there was a joke to be had about a Roman fort and St. Mirren defending in the first half, but it's gone. It's gone now. Roman and a gloaming. So this is the agenda for the week we have today, the agenda, obviously. Tomorrow we've got the review, which is me and Christian. Christian pouring scorn on any of your happiness, uh, telling you why you're wrong to like the things that you like. Um, Wednesday we'll obviously have the reaction to the Hearts game. Thursday we will have two pods out, the, the Celtic Women's Football Show and the Weekly. On Friday, we'll have the weekend update. Saturday, the reaction to the hearts again. I mean, we're repeating ourselves here. And then Sunday, we'll have the Players' Lounge. 
But this is the agenda. We're going to be talking about all the kind of uh, current news things that are happening and the game that happened yesterday that we've alluded to already. Alan, let's start with uh, a kind of opening question. And it's it's not related to what was happening this weekend for us, but what was happening this weekend for Hibs. And that is Aidan McGeady. It looks like he might be having a career-ending injury. What are your kind of memories of Aidan McGeady? Where do you think he kind of falls in the kind of the history of Celtic Football Club? Um, well, that's a that's a very big question. You were you weren't right. Yeah, you went wrong. Sorry when you just prior to recording you said you were looking to get a lot of live reactions. <laughs> um, I think McGeady for me was one of the ones coming through. Um, I think his debut was what both. Oh, oh, 03 or oh, 04 against Hearts um, under O'Neill and it, I was aware of him um, as I think most people had for quite some time before he'd made his debut um, I think I've mentioned before his, his, his dad John was my English teacher um, for a couple of years um, at St Andrews and we had kind of tried to follow his journey a little bit um, you know living our dream vicariously through your English teacher's son um, which is what most uh, young 13 and 14 year olds <laughs> I would imagine but we were quite excited um, to kind of hear how he was getting on even stories of Tommy Burns you know being at um, being at his house and things was just incredible to us and then when he made his debut obviously he kind of he did bust onto the scene I know that's probably one of the um, Twitter videos we'll hear soon um, of the cliches of bust onto the scene I, I always think his crowning moment for me was um, in the Champions League against Stacey Milan I, I thought I was sitting in the north stand that day, quite low down, and we were really, really close to the touchline. Um, and it was just incredible to see a player that we had that we had developed through our youth system playing at that stage of the Champions League, but not just playing, excelling, and being the real lightning rod for our team. Um, and I think there's a lot of discussion about his legacy, what he went on to achieve. A lot of people talk down his career, but for us to create a player like that, who a shone for us for us made as a significant transfer fee at the time and then went on to have a really, really good career, I think is a real success story and one of the one probably one of the biggest success stories of a, a Celtic player in the modern era, probably alongside Kieran Tierney. So um always liked him, always loved him when he was here and then I always kind of followed his career. Um, even after the left Celtic I was delighted to see him doing well. So um it, it does make me feel a little bit old now that he's at the tail end of his career. Mm-hmm. Um I think he's a couple of years older than me and it starts taking a it's certainly a player I remember coming through as a kid. So um, it's, it's a shame that, as, as you say, in the manager, I read that this morning, but um, he's certainly someone that I would, I'd would i like to hope that he can be involved at Celtic somewhere in the future. Kieran, like, I think for me, one of my favourite memories was when he was away from Celtic and he was uh, clearly time-wasting for Spartak Moscow for us, but playing for Spartak Moscow at the end of that Champions League match when he was basically giving away idiotic fouls every few seconds. It, he's, he's a guy, I think a lot of wingers are basically the same for Celtic. If you think of someone like Ed McGeady, you think of Mikey Johnson, you think of James Forrest, they're always players that kind of polarise the support. Uh, what what are your kind of obviously you're a, a lot a lot younger than Alan. Uh, what are your memories of of uh, Ed McGinn? I think I mentioned before, but like, I think the striking years. I was between eleven and fifteen um, when when this for the striking years, and those are the years where football isn't just you love it when the ball goes in the air. You start to understand the nuances a bit more. You start to understand the complexities, and I think that really 
you know, chimed in with McGeady's best years. I think, you know, you're looking, I'd say between 2006 and 2008 was probably his best. Those two seasons were his best for Celtic. You know, he's amazing, as Alan said, he was amazing in the Champions League. I remember the, the Benfica game as well. I can't remember whether it was home or away, but I just remember he was absolutely outstanding. And I never was, away. It was never away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. Um, um, and, you know, when you are that age as well, you do just love wingers. Um, you, you're not at the age, <laughs> we talk about all the time how wingers can often get the most ire, they can be the most frustrating, but not when you're 12 or 13. You know, they are the ones who just excite you. You're the one the cutting inside and shooting, whether they're taking a man on and doing an amazing cross. I've just, I've just like got his Wikipedia up now. And I was just saying, 07 08, he produced 24 assists. In, in, the, in the league, I think. And, you know, they're given, okay, I, I can hear Christian punching a hole in his wall because we're talking about assists and not expected assists, but that's insane. <laughs> that is absolutely remarkable. And I think it was, what, 21 or something at the time? Um, it's it's remarkable that he's done that in what probably presumably David Ngees, you know, he's got, I don't know, like less than 38 games. He was a special player and a really creative player. He had his issues and, you know, as we say, maybe he didn't quite fulfil the extraordinary potential he had. But I think he had enough games for us that I think, for me personally, I've got a lot of, like, nostalgic affection for him. But I do think if you're just taking it as, like, an objective standpoint, he was a really, I mean, you know, he maybe wasn't as consistent a player as someone like Tierney or McGregor. But in terms of giving you that magic in, sp- in certain games... He he was just superb. He he was he was electric, and I'd I'd absolutely love to see, you know, if we're talking about what a, a fantasy would be, I think he'd be really exciting in this Ange team. You know that PK mm-hmm. McGeady would be perfect as one of those those wingers. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, it'd be a real shame to, for his career to end this way. But I think you can definitely reflect on him as being a really excellent. Celtic player who I think you know mm-hmm. maybe he didn't leave on the best of terms you know we got a record fee for him at the time but I think it's one of those things it's the same thing I guess with Brown leaving after the failure at the 10 in a row the the immediate hurt sort of wanes over time I know you remember maybe most fondly are the, the positive memories you have I think that's as true as McGeady is with Brown yeah and uh, hopefully it it won't be a case of his uh, career ending just now, but it doesn't look too good for Ed McGeady. And someone for me who, I mean, he came in, he basically came to the fore after the Martin O'Neill team, and that was a barren time <laughs> for for Celtic. I mean, it wasn't a barren time. We still won things, but for quality on the park, it was a barren time, and he was one of the kind of the the main lights of of that kind of era. So, Alan, let's talk about the modern era. Let's talk about yesterday. And uh, a game that was that was equal parts frustrating and equal parts felt like uh, a friendly where we were rolling over the other team. I don't think we I don't think we started winning the XG battle until about the 60th minute, which was which is a bizarre uh, thing for Celtic, especially when we're two one up at the time and still losing the XG battle. What did you make of the game? Obviously, we we had the reaction yesterday. It was mostly positive, but. I think it's important to kind of be critical when we're successful as well. Yesterday wasn't great and the red card really changed the game. What, what did you make of yesterday overall? Yeah, I think the the first 
the first half, maybe he could be a little bit more. The first 40 minutes were really, really poor. And um, I think you could you could have probably easily made your five substitutions and been quite happy with five players going off. Um, uncharacteristically poor. Um, I think the two wingers both were really poor. I thought Moy, McGregor were really, really poor. Um, yeah, just all over the park, just a really poor performance, really, as I say, uncharacteristic. And um, But we did maybe start to get into areas a little bit. And I think it was somebody who pointed out in the reaction that whilst the performance was well below standard, it was entirely different from the first game. I would say at St Mirren Park in that we were getting into areas. It was just we did lack a little bit of quality um, and our decision-making at times was poor. And St Mirren did defend well, um, referring. I think a red card is always going to change a game and I'm not saying that it didn't change this game. I think the only thing that I maybe feel is a little bit lost in the discussion though is that if St Mirren had come back in the second half with 11 men, I'm still not convinced that I wouldn't think Celtic could win the game comfortably. The idea that we couldn't have won 5-1 had St Mirren had 11 players in the park just seems a little bit that we're almost talking ourselves down. Um, it takes away their offensive threat and they pressed us um, and, and had success in doing so. But I think the idea that we would have come out and put in that same level of performance in the second half of day had 11 men is just unlikely, um, I would say. And um, if they hadn't have made that mistake, I, I would have still felt that we would have had a say in the game. It might have, might, might have been tighter. We might not have won. But the idea that we couldn't do that to 11 men of St. Mirren, I just think is maybe something that we're overplaying a little bit. Um, it was a red card, and I know the discussion, uh, the decisions were discussed yesterday in the reaction, but I, I still feel that um, the second half, it just felt a little bit different from the first game, and I would have been surprised, very surprised, if we came out in the second half and put anything like that performance in, whether it be against 10 or 11 men yesterday. So, really, really poor first half. Um, credit to St. Mirren, I thought they played quite well, but I, I, the idea that that would have continued for ninety minutes on a beat, I think, is just a little bit, um, a little bit unlikely, in, in my in my opinion. You know, what, what what did you make of it? I mean, obviously, we we ended up with like a variety of goal scorers. Um, we were creating chances in that first half, just not uh, massive ones. And as as Alan said, we were playing pretty differently to the, the way we played. The, uh, the last game at Love Street and uh, I can imagine if they get top six we'll probably have to go back there again because we'll have three away games to play in the, 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 the after the split what, what did you make of the game you, obviously you only saw it in like, uh, small segments as you were traversing Hadrian as well, what, what did you make of it? Um, yeah, I thought the first half was really really poor um, I, I, I was like maybe a bit frustrated with the lineup. Because I did think it was another case. We've talked about this in recent weeks where um, Ange just picks his first 11. He doesn't really take the competition into account. And his subs traditionally have just been players 12 and 13 rather than players you think, right, this is actually addressing the problem. And, you know, I think he just picked his best 11 there and it wasn't, it, it felt like they, we hadn't learned our lesson from the, the, the cup game against St Mirren because they know how to play against us when it's 0-0 or when they know to man-mark the midfield, stop the ball getting into midfield because and the centre-backs aren't going to carry it up themselves. 
So and and you know they've done that more successfully than Rangers have to a large extent. Um, but as we've seen, once we once we get an equaliser or we take a lead, they they don't have a plan B for that, and that's what we could just turn them over. Um, I, I it was a it was a bit of a funny one. Like I mentioned in one of the chats, like I was still angry at five one. If that makes sense, I don't know because it's like residual fury. Um, but I just felt like a complete mug by because we, you know, we, again we've won, and this is something we've chatted on the agenda before. Is like we might disagree with the lineups or the substitutions, but fundamentally we're still winning these games and and you know winning them well. So you know you just have to you have to just feel like a mug. Um, yeah, it was a funny one, like especially a badder, like you know, he's not he wasn't in good form going into yesterday. He's not a guy who traditionally thrives in those types of games where there isn't a lot of space to run into, where you do have to rely on your close control and quick thinking against deep teams. That's not really games he, you know, traditionally excels in. And then he he did really well. And it's, I think it's just like the entire thing is like, oh, maybe I'm just an arsehole. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, and I do think like St Mirren just collapsed after the Jota got his goal. All the sense of like structured discipline fell apart. And we that's not to say we weren't good. We were good. You know, we were moving the ball well. People were getting into good areas, the types of areas we wanted them to. I think, you know, we, the midfielders were going out wide a bit more. We were having those rotations, which I don't think in the first half we really were. It was quite stagnant. Um, and yeah, it just, I just, it just, the change works. And then, you know, when the other guys came on, I think it's quite interesting now that Awata seems to be ahead of Turnbull now in the last two games again this it could all change of hearts midweek but like, that seems two games in a row he's come ahead of um ahead of Turnbull you know Haksabanovic again looked sharp when he came on oh had some good touches he's got his penalty and I think he he does look like quite an interesting option there we discussed it before that he is different to Gigi and, and Kyogo and I think yesterday is maybe a bit more evidence to that to stack that up so I, I think yeah I think it was one of those a little frustrated, but at the same time, we won five one with some really nice goals. There were some good performances in the second half, and yeah, um, we just keep winning these games. It really is, it's really, it's just astonishing how we can play some of the worst football under Ange for forty five minutes and then still come out five one winners because that's what this team is. They're just they're the level of competition and the level of um, their desire to score goals, their desire to win games is. Is up there with the Vince Invincibles, up there with the O'Neill era. You know, they have that winner's mentality so reinforced in them now. Where I, I think it's got to the stage where even if we're 1 0 down and it's the 89th minute, a uh, thing I hope I never have to see, by the way, from my heart. But if even if it were, I'd still, even being a big shape bag, I do think there will be part of me that thinks this team are more than capable of winning this, even 1 0 down in the 89th minute, because that's just how they're. That's just their, it runs through them. It's their through line as a team. Yeah, I mean, I think I always have this thing in my head, like if we if we are going to win this game, we need to score the equaliser by the 70th minute and then it gives us a... But as as you said, Kieran, like even if we don't have an equaliser until the last few minutes, we still I still believe in this team that we will actually turn it over. Um, Alan, I'm not a Leo Abada fan. Um, I mean, I think I've said that in many, many parts. Uh, and I think yesterday I was talking about how the last game against St. Mon- uh, Love Street, um, Maeda, Moy, 
in a badder with the three horrendous players in the park and the ones that just didn't do anything. And yesterday it was Maya Dan Moy in the first half, particularly that was getting my ire. And I thought, if we're going to make a sub here, it has to be Haksavanovic. We can't be bringing a bad hand onto this park because he's just not going to do anything. And then he came on and did things. Uh, what, did, what did you make of his impact yesterday? I'd like to sit and say that I was in total agreement with Ange and that um, that would have been my first move, but I probably wasn't delighted to see Abada being the first sub. I think me and Samani talked in the weekly and we maybe felt that Haksibanovic was starting to creep up on him a little bit in terms of players 12 and 13, as Kieran mentioned. Um, and I think had St Mirren stayed with 11 men, I think there is, I think you're maybe being a bit kind not naming Jota in that first half as well because um, everything he touched really, um, for want of a better phrase, turned to shit. Um, but when they go down to 10 men, I think Maeda's the right change, especially if he's not having a great game because any of the work that he does going back the way then becomes almost null and void because it's not going to happen. So I think that's why he was the, the sub to come off. I would have probably, I would have liked to have seen Haksibanovic. And when Abada came on the first four or five minutes, I think he did his usual wrong decisions. And I was starting to think, ah, this is not the the masterstroke that has been. But then within the space of five, six minutes, um, he plays that reverse pass into Moy um, and it, it, it changes the game. And then it becomes very comfortable. He actually becomes really... I think the one thing that I noticed yesterday with Nevada that I'd, I'd probably be extremely complimentary of, aside from his contributions with his goal and his assist, is actually he just kept trying to make the same run every time from outside to in, whether the pass was on or not. And it became a real challenge for St Mirren um, to deal with it. Do you follow him in and drop that line even deeper or do you let him go and hope that no one's good enough? And it just posed, diff- I think, different questions. Um, and actually... He goes from, I think, being really, really disappointing over the last four weeks to actually having probably his best 45 minutes in a separate jersey for months. And the one thing, when he's confident, when he does get that little bit of sharpness, he does tend to be impactful and Ange does trust him and he he likes him a lot. So I I really don't know what the next two, three months holds for Leila Bada. And I'm genuinely tired of just getting it wrong and Leila Bada all the time. So... (laughs) I'm just going to call a mulligan on it and just whatever happens, happens. Um, because I'm naturally the same as you. I find that a lot of Easter play can be quite frustrating. I think just he makes the wrong decisions a lot. But he is 20 and his output at times is exceptional. So um, I think, um, yeah, when a bad comes on, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut in future um, at all times. Um, and I, I will reserve the right to try and claim to be right at some point because, I, yeah. I think that, that that sums it up, to be honest, with regards to Abad. There's people who genuinely are, are, are believers in him um, and they're proven right. Off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they're proven right probably more than they're proven wrong. Um, it's it's just a tough one. But um, Aksabanovic isn't getting that nod. And I think I think we talked about it last week. There must be a reason for it. It's either work rate or fitness because mm. I don't think there's any question of ability. <laughs> Just a little update at this point in the podcast, our good friend Kieran had some business that they had to take care of, so he had to uh, drop out of the pod, but uh, Alan and Graham continued on.
I want to talk about Alistair Johnson. Uh, he's been in the paper basically talking about how he will never let Rangers push them around. And uh, he's been talking about how he, he, he loves a kind of physical side of the game. And uh, when he, he was talking about seeing players like stand up to the, the more you know, fancy uh, Celtic players and try to bully them, etc., and how he's never going to let that happen. I mean, most of the time we want to be kind of fancy football guys that talk about the the, the qualities that players have, but sometimes you just want a good shit house in your team as well. And Alistair Johnson seems to provide that, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he's um, just firstly he's he's one of the few players that he's very insightful um, when he speaks. He is very you can tell he's grown up in that North American culture um, where it's actually much more acceptable to be a little bit more frank and a bit more honest in interviews as opposed to um, the Aaron Moy school of interview technique which is the exact opposite Um, I I really like the comments actually and I think you're right, I think we want 11 players in a team that are technically gifted um, and they're always quote unquote fancy players but I I, I like the, the basic principle actually that defenders quite like defending and quite like the physical element of a game. And I think his comments weren't weren't outrageous. They were fairly straightforward in that he kind of feels it's his job a little bit to be a little bit more physical, a little bit more aggressive and try and protect guys like Jota, Maeda, Kyogo, the the more attacking flair players, although Ryzen Maeda can probably handle himself in fairness. Um, But I just quite liked it. I think it's... As a basic principle, I think it goes mainly unsaid. But you, I think you look at him, you look at his performances. He is a very naturally physical player. And I think the discourse since he came in has, I don't think anyone has questioned his defensive abilities or his physical attributes. I think he's, he's he has all of those in his locker. The question is how good can he be at the more technically proficient side of it? And I think you've started to see, in, in my opinion, over, over the last couple of weeks, and particularly in the Rangers game, I think he's becoming a little bit more adventurous in his passing. Um, instead of just shuffling the ball back the way now, he's more confident playing the pass inside to McGregor and in traffic. And that's what he'll need to do. That's where he'll need to grow um, because he's obviously got significant um, shoes to fill, I think, where, where JJ was at, at that level with the ball. So I think it's very encouraging. I, th- I don't think you'll really see the best of Arthur Johnson until next year at which point you can then maybe start to have a discussion because it is a difficult role. It's an extremely difficult role to fill in Angie's team. We've seen that. Um, but I think he's got all the, he has all the attributes physically and it's just about how good he can be technically. But I think it's very encouraging from him and he knows how to get people on his side. I don't think there's any question about that. That mm-hmm. North American culture, um, we we buy into it and we absolutely eat it up, or certainly I eat it up and the pretty much interview that he did on Sky yesterday I think was excellent and um, I think he's the kind of player that Rangers fans will kind of learn to hate mm. and follow more in the, the footsteps of Mikhail Lustig probably than Joseph Juranovic um, mm. so he, he's maybe that's been passed down the line a little bit but I've been really encouraged by him really excited by him I mean you can be as kind of like sophisticated football fan as you want but there was a there was a time I th- I can't remember who it was against, maybe St Man at home, where uh, somebody got right up in Kyogo's face, uh, just behind the goal. I don't know if you remember that. And it, it happened, it was like happening over like five, ten seconds, and no, no, no Celtic player was 
there to kind of defend them. And then I think Dave Flanagan said that it was the whole Celtic team was so far away from it. But you just you hate to see it. You just want someone to come in there and start fucking pushing the other team, even if there's going to be no kind of result from it. Just you want you want. It feels like you're when you're playing a game of football. It feels like a kind of war, and you just don't want any kind of inch given to the other team. One of one of the things, and I presume Asta Johnson will be fairly familiar with it because he's grown up and, as I say, you know, grown up in Canada. I'd imagine he's maybe been exposed to a little bit of basketball. But if a player goes down in the court, there's, there's five guys in the court. If one guy hits the ground for whatever reason, the other four guys will go and make sure he's okay and help him up. And it's mm-hmm. just that basic team building principle that everybody does. Even if it's just a, some an obvious, they'll make sure that he's okay. They'll get him up and then they'll get moving. Um, and it's it's something I quite like to see. Um, although it's funny you mentioned Kyogo there. I don't know if you noticed yesterday when Charles Dunn gets sent off, the red card gets shown to Charles Dunn, and you just see Kyogo patting him on the head. <laughs> And I really don't think you would want anything less than when you've just been shown a straight red card as the guy that you filled. I'm not saying that he meant it in a patronising manner, but you would just rather he didn't. And <laughs> it must be I, it I, must I, be a cultural thing for them because that patting someone in the head is just not. It's, it's not, not what you want. Yeah, big bully centre half that's just made a pig's ear of it, and uh, yeah, you've got the striker. That you you can uh, hold down, patting you in the head, saying it's okay, pal, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> I, I had a, a, a good dry laugh at that yesterday. Yeah, love it, love to see it. Uh, we, we've been speaking about obviously McGeady and kind of uh, wingers that are the uh, kind of uh, split the support, and uh, I don't think anyone has done that in recent years as much as Mikey Johnson. And uh, he's been obviously in the news because he has chosen to represent Ireland, and. Uh, Ange was obviously asked about these things and he was talking about Mikey Johnson having a kind of pathway still at Celtic and basically when he comes back, they'll look to see what his development has been and whether it fits into the team. What do you think about Mikey Johnson? Do you think he has a, a role to play still at Celtic or do you think he will be quickly moved on after his, his long spell is finished? I mean, it feels like a long time ago that Mikey Johnson was a, a, a part of the first team set up here. Um, and I, I haven't been watching him um, when he's been over there, but I've been kind of keeping tabs and he does seem to be doing well. It does feel a little bit, though, at the moment, that the levels at Celtic have probably moved on quite a bit and it would take a significant improvement on his behalf to break into that first team and make an impact. I remember, and you'll be the same, Graham, you remember back to when Mikey Johnson first came back fit under Ange and it felt like a lot of hopes were pinned on him to be a creative influence. That does feel like a long time ago now. And we talk a lot about the average improvement across the team and how hard that is to break into that 13, 14 rotation. It would be extremely difficult, I think, for Mikey Johnson to do that. And I think Andrew's being respectful, he's being professional, and that he would be given the exact same chance at pre-season as anybody else. But I think it would take, it feels like it would take a significant shift in his physical abilities, technical ability to be a part of a to be a real part of a Celtic first team. Um I think the only thing that would maybe is he's a homegrown player and that would help him, but you need to be a, a minimum standard, I think, to really be able to contribute there. So uh, just in in my opinion, I think it would be quite a stretch. I d I don't know what you think on Mikey Johnson, but it feels like it would be a big, big stretch for him to come back and be a part of the first team. Also we this kind of left wing right footed 
uh, player we have, so many of them. I mean, we've got so many players looking to play in that position. You've got Jota, you've got Haksibanovic, Maeda, all trying to play on that left-hand side and just, I don't, I can't see it. And I, I think that kind of like leads on to, I, I, actually, I actually consider writing something about this, but the the problem we're going to have in the Champions League going forward but when it comes to squad building and that, so so it used to be where you would have other teams out, out with Celtic and Rangers producing Scottish talent that we could then buy. So you've got Paul Hartley, you've got Robins, etc. And it seems now, and I think Dundee United are the, the latest club that are going to lose one of their 17-year-olds to, to the EPL. The, the English teams are coming in sooner for these players, which means that the clubs in Scotland are not producing Scottish talent of a good enough level for Celtic to, to want to buy. Is it going to be a case that Celtic are going to now have to either just focus on producing their own talent or trying to buy foreign players under the age of 18 to try and get them into that kind of homegrown status stage? Because the, the good young talents in the rest of Scotland are just getting cherry-picked by English teams before they even get a chance to, to progress. Yeah, it's, um, it is very similar. It's... Look, there's no gal today, so we can talk about American sports as much as we like. <laughs> but it is very similar to that you know, MLB system in that it is just about volume and it's about having as many players with potential under your um, under your banner that you can go to if they become talented. And I think for Celtic, we we want to see a player in Scotland play six months at least before we think of committing three, four million pounds to a player, the last player that I can think of really that would have been of interest to us and would have been relevant to us probably would have been Calvin Ramsey. But he'd mm. only played, what was it, 11, 12 games for Aberdeen. And a fee, a fee of three or four million was just excessive for a player who'd only played that amount of first-team football. So I think it highlights to us that you need to be earlier in that process. But it's a significant outlay. I think Dundee United will be looking at a six-figure fee for... Um, you know, a 17-year-old. And I don't think we have... It's not that we don't have the budget for that, but I'm not sure that we have the appetite to spend that money if it doesn't come back to us. Whereas I would say most Premier League teams can an outlay of 700, pounds in a player that's not played a lot of first-team football in Scotland. They can look at that and say, we can justify that. For Celtic, I'm not sure we can. And I think it, it would have to be that lower end um, the kind of Dylan Reed end of the market that you would be looking at, which obviously we were linked with last year. The question that I think the player had in that was that how, where is my pathway to that first team? And as much as you're right that we need to look at either developing our own or looking at under-18 talent from abroad, I think they'll be looking at it saying, what is the pathway for a player in our first team at Celtic? Because if it starts at Celtic B, playing against junior teams, not even junior teams. I don't think that's an appetising prospect for someone who's 17, 18. They would rather go and get first team football exposure elsewhere. And I think that's a, I think the bigger problem is what is our structure? What is our academy structure? And how does that feed into the first team? Because the pathway at the moment looks pretty convoluted. Um, and I, I think we've talked about it before. Celtic B system at the moment does not seem to be fit for purpose for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And uh, I think. I was I was saying the other day about how I think we always have criticisms for Celtic managers, no matter how good they are. Like I think people, if you go back to the Martin Neal days, people would have been complaining about the fact that we play the same eleven every single week, and 
Mm-hmm. And um, even criticising the fact that Hartson came in and broke up the Sutton Larson partnership. I think every manager gets criticism no matter how well they're doing. And for me, Ange, my biggest criticism of Ange is the lack of youth being brought through. Do you, I mean, obviously Ange only cares about results and cares about his own position at the club. Do you think there needs to be more of a responsibility on Celtic managers to be playing youth players? To be, I mean, even bringing someone on in the last half hour when we're, I mean, St. Mun yesterday, 4 1 up, I mean, going into the last half hour, I mean, that is exactly the kind of position you want to bring in someone like Rocco Vata on. Do you think there has to be more of a responsibility put on the manager to bring through youth at Celtic? I think, I think everybody would like to see it. Um, I, I think I agree. He is much more in that Mark Manuel mould of, He's here to win and he's here to win now. Um, and he's very conscious of that. And I think we all enjoy that. But I think, I don't think it's unreasonable to point out there probably is a slight dearth of talent for him to pick from. If we had, for example, Toby Oluwayemi, who's just went and loaned to Cork City, I think if he was a player that the manager believed in, that the club believed in, I think there might be an opportunity from there to go with the first team and be a part of it but he's not even with you know Ben Segrist out injured for quite some time although I think he's back this week there's no opportunity there um, it's I think other than Rocco Vata Ben Summers who I think we might be talking about as former Celtic player soon I think that's the concern that when we do have good players they don't have that pathway but at the age of 16-17 it's very difficult to justify these guys being on the bench when you do have players like David Turnbull there's a lot of water who are dying for minutes. So I can see it from Angie's point of view in that to build a competitive squad that is there to win, it's very difficult to just bring someone in because the club want them to progress. But I think if the players are, if Rocco Vata was at that level, he would get more game time, but it's very difficult to bring him in before. You know, players that are working hard every week and scratching and clawing to get 10 minutes here and there. So I agree with the criticism. Also, I think if we had more talent and the players were of that standard, I think they would push their way through. I mean, we talked about Aidan Aiden McGeady earlier on. Mark Manil gave him game time because he believed in him. Beyond that, Mark Manil was limited to, I think, Stephen Craney, Jamie Smith, players who really could only be rotational options when they absolutely needed them. Whereas McGeady was an outlier because he was good enough. I think the question is, of all the players we have at the moment, there's a lot of names mentioned, but are they good enough? Boston Lowell, I think Yemi when he came in, there was high hopes for, but they haven't reached that potential. Some of that is down to them. Some of it might be down to the club because, as I say, at the age of 17, 18, playing against not professional teams, I, I just don't think is ideal. And when they get loan moves, are they the right moves? It's, it's, I think it's a big, big question over the B team. I, I'm not a fan of the B team playing against universities, Broomhill, teams like that. I really think if you're 18 years old and you want to be a professional football player, you should be playing professional football, not semi-professional or against junior teams. I think it's a, there's only, there's a very short window where it can become a learning curve. After that, you need to be playing professional games. And I think it's something the club need to have a, a really, a, a really long, hard think about. It really is a, a problem for a team like Celtic who have that kind of expectation of uh, winning every week and trying to balance that out with the, the youth. Yeah. So, so Josh Ginelli, uh, I bet you didn't think I was going to bring up Josh Ginelli in this podcast. Is it just because you like saying Josh Ginelli? It's <laughs> such a fun name to say. It is a really good name, yeah. 
Uh, he's been in the papers this week talking about Kyogo and uh, he's been kind of like talking about working on his game and one of his kind of mentors has been Kyogo and that he's been studying him the way that he moves in the box and looking at his positioning. And he says, quote, I watch other strikers and the best in the league is probably Kyogo. He is always in that right position. Look at his goals in last week's final. He's always in that era. He's a great player. So I study some of the stuff that he does. What is it? So you think about, and this was one of the, the criticisms of uh, Kyogo at the start of the season and that he just wasn't getting into those positions. But what is it about someone like Kyogo who has that kind of, is it a kind of sixth sense to get into the right position or is it just a case of doing it over and over again and, and then eventually the ball will fall? What is it that makes the striker in positioning uh, a great striker, do you think? I do not have the qualifications to answer that question, but in the good <laughs> nature of podcasting, I'll have a right good stab at it. I, I think the I think the League Cup final is an example, is, and I talked about it, I think, last week, either on here or on the weekly, Kyogo is the player in the team who just keeps moving and um, he gets a lot of plaudits for it. I think you see the red card for St Mirren yesterday is just because of his endeavour and a big mistake, obviously, from the defender. But if he's not pressing that ball, then, you know, that doesn't happen. And that gets a lot of plaudits. It gets a lot of people say, oh, doesn't he work hard? And, you know, that's good. And he has a work rate that you wouldn't get from a Scottish player, etc. I think sometimes there's a wee bit of a patronising element to it as well, but that's neither here nor there but what he did in the League Cup final I think was the exact opposite of that when and I mentioned that when either Moy or Hitati go beyond and are almost in line with the striker all the movement that he does off the ball he actually then slows everything down and he waits for a defender to go and pick up Moy or Hitati because they're peeling into those areas and that's when he then stops moving that's when he becomes a little bit more stationary and waits for they've stepped away and just hold that space. And that's where he gets the goals. Certainly the first goal in the cup final, I think the second goal is a little bit more of that drive to get there and get in front of his um, his man who happened to be Barisic again. And I think that's a real that's a real talent. I think it must be difficult in a game. See, when you are pressing constantly, you're always about your movement. You're always trying to run off the shoulder or do something. It's about then when to slow it down and stop and have that then ability to slow it down and be able to make you know good contact in a ball when it comes. And I, I don't think it's that he didn't do that earlier in the season. I think it's that what he did was he kept moving and everything that he did was all one motion. And it was a little bit rushed, um, a little bit panicked. Whereas I think since certainly since the World Cup, he's became a little bit more confident in his ability to slow it down and then wait for that chance to come. And he, he's been absolutely lethal. Um, I know yesterday wasn't his best performance, but he again has a huge impact in the game. He's been, it's just been great to see a player playing with that level of confidence. He knows those opportunities will come because of the way we play. And now he's a little bit more composed when the ball comes into those areas. And you see it in his goal with him since then. He's been a joy to watch. Um, and I think it's quite, it's quite interesting to hear another player in the league, um, essentially give him those plaudits and say that they're trying to learn from him and do what he does because you can watch them all you like. Replicating that, I think, will be extremely difficult. So we we are obviously looking to the summer already um, as a podcast and as a football club. Ange Postecoglou, and oh, me, Josh Janelli, get back to that. Ange Postecoglou has spoken about already looking to the window. 
And he says, quote, I think if you look at every window since I've been here, we have strengthened and we are already doing work to make sure we come out of the next win- window even stronger than we uh, than when we enter it. Um, what do you think, if you're Ange, what are, what are the areas that you're looking for when it comes to, we're going, we get, I don't know, Barcelona in next season's Champions League. Who do you, what positions do you want, want to be improved by the time we get to that? I think, um, I think it's fairly clear and that the one main area would be a goalkeeper. Um, I think the rest of the, I think the, the outfield 10 we've got are good. It might be, you know, if you're cooking a big meal, he's got all the raw ingredients here, it just needs maybe a little bit of seasoning out there. Whereas I think in goal, I think there's a clear improvement needed. Um, I think Joe Hart's, again, he's a leader on and off the park for the team. But I think we just need a better goalkeeper, whether it be handling shortstop and coming for crosses or with the ball at his feet, distribution, um, you know, when he is outside the box, having a bit more composure, etc. Um, I, I would like to see that, particularly in the Champions League, because I think it was a step too far this year. And I think he was part to play in some disappointing results. So I think you'd be hard pushed to pick any other area of the park that needs a, a clear improvement in goals. Um, and I, I like Joe Hart. I think he's been a great signing. And, um, you know, he's, he's two years here. If he is number one for um, the rest of the season only, I think it's two years here would be fond to remember. But I, I would hope that we have an improvement in, um, between the sticks going into Champions League next year. If you want to suggest another area of the park clearer than that, it would be a tough case to make then. What about, what about right wing? Because we, we have a different talent on the left-hand side, but the right wing always seems to be somewhere we were kind of fitting. We're putting someone out there because they can't play in the left wing because we've already got somewhere. Would you like to see a spe- like a right wing specialist, Brian? I think it's tricky because Jota has shown that on occasion he can really thrive out there as much as he does on the left. But probably like most people, I just think, he always wants to cut in on that right foot and potentially play the extra pass and get a shot off. And obviously he doesn't do that on the right-hand side. Um, I could be facetious and try and make the point that James Forrest um, hasn't been in a squad and he's an actual right-winger, but um, I think I might be on to to plums there. So, yeah, a natural right-winger, whether that be right or left-footed, you know, I wouldn't complain at, but I, I don't think it's an area that I would say needs urgently addressed um, I think what you'd be looking at is the players that you've already got looking to kick on the levels and actually contribute a little bit more and more consistently I think over the last 67 weeks I think both our winners have shown that they might not both be exceptional at the same time but if one drops off the other definitely picks up the slack and then I kind of more than comfortable in that front three as it stands even if we are talking about a champion league game next year I, th- I think I would be comfortable starting with that three and I would say I would say centre back, but a kind of dedication to Kieran who has left us, Kobayashi is going to be the the best centre back since sliced bread. Let's move on to listen another, another of another of that long line of players that are the best things since sliced bread. However, can't quite get on the park, um, which is a novel concept. Yeah, shout out to uh, the Gitch. Um, <laughs> a couple of questions from the listeners now. We've got two questions from Liam. Taking liberties and uh, submitting two questions. 
but he wants to talk about the Asia Cup. He says it takes place next season, looking at squad without the Asian guys. It would be clearly weaker with a number of our key players coming from that part of the world. Do you think we should be considering the Asia Cup when it comes to our uh, summer transfer strategy? I don't know what's happening with my words today. Do you think we should be looking at the players that we're going to lose for that kind of uh, January, February next uh, period next year and thinking about bringing players in to kind of supplement that squad? What do you think? It's just, it's kind of like, it would be a big outlay to just uh, compensate for a few weeks in the season. Oh, I think it, you, it is something you're aware of. I think obviously we would have the option potentially of, postponements if there was a significant number away um, I think at the moment we are working on the basis that all of the Japanese players we have would actually be called up which hasn't been the case um, obviously Kyogo whether he gets back in or not would be a decision for the manager Hitati I think we would imagine would get there but again we forget that Japan really do have a lot of quality and before the World Cup I remember us all in kind of saying, how can they go to the World Cup without Kyogo, without Hitate? That's a nonsense. And actually watched them in a World Cup and you thought, you know what, they really do have other good Japanese players. So I think we might be a bit mindful Yeah, it it might become an issue at that point if they were all to be called up and um, obviously potentially Kobayashi as well. And if all was to to be called up, you would have an issue. I, I would be surprised if they all make it. And if you do, I would be keen to look at the fixtures around that time and look at whether postponements are an issue. But I don't think um, I don't think it's something that you would inform your whole transfer strategy on. I'm not sure how many more players we would buy from that market. I don't think it would stop us if we felt it was a good first team player. I don't think whether they were going to the Asia Cup or not would would um, would stop us from signing them. So yeah, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. We're not going to have a. I don't think we're going to have eight or nine players that are all going to the Asia Cup. So I don't think it's that big an issue. If we had a Rangers fixture in that time, I think we would be maybe looking at it and thinking postponements. But if we do remember back to last year, when obviously we were missing a number of players, it wasn't even considered and just played on with what we had and it worked out pretty well for us then. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's more of the same again next um, next February. I actually, when I see another club signing a Japanese player, I get personally offended. <laughs> have, have, you, have you had this experience where you see someone saying, you're like, why the fuck have we not signed them? We, we are the premier landing spot in um, Western Europe for the best of Japanese talent now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Liam also asked basically about whether we should always be on top of Rangers, which I feel I'm bored with. He's talking about the, the kind of uh, gap off the field with the extra 10,000 season ticket holders and uh, financial fair play and stuff like that. And basically saying if we are properly run, should we always be ahead of Rangers? And it's it's something that I've been thinking about recently as well with the, that you always get this idea that uh, football is kind of, it's like swings and roundabouts with football when there will always be teams that go up and then come back down and go back. And I think Man City are an example of, a team that don't need to that don't need to do that. I think if you if you run well, there's no reason why Celtic can't always be on top. And mm-hmm. what, what do you make of this? Yeah, I see it as a byproduct as opposed to that's the aim. I see if we do the right things, and I think we've talked about this for a number of years that Europe is a big um, opportunity for us. 
Um, and when we think about succeeding in Europe, there's been a tendency for us to think that that might cost us domestically. But I think when you look at, if you improve in Europe, then one hand will wash the other because the riches that the Champions League can offer us. And I know that restructure probably is on the way in terms of European football. So that's something we can be aware of and react to. But as it stands, if we make the Champions League, the, the financial rewards for that are significant. And, you know, that 30 million plus that you can gain from that is significant and really changes what you can do. And if you can then invest that, if you invest it wisely, you get a good manager, you give a good manager the right funding, then I think the byproduct of that would be that you would be coming out on top um, more often than not with Rangers. And if you use that, though, as the aim to just be better than Rangers, I think it then means all you need to be is one point better than Rangers at the end of a season. And that's been something that I think has held us actually back over the last 10, 15 years, as much as we've won trophies, we've been successful, it's been great, I've enjoyed it. I think it's came at a little bit of a cost in terms of a um, progression in Europe and actually the clubs went backwards over the last 20 years in Europe, which is something that I think we'd all like to see addressed. The, the problem with Europe is that, I mean, when we were making, what, £6 million signings in Chris Sutton, what would that be nowadays? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about... What, when you think about Chris Sutton, he's someone who had been a massive player in England, had one bad season. So talk about I mean, maybe someone like Timo Werner. Timo Werner. That would be the equivalent of Celtic signing Timo Werner, which you, no one can imagine nowadays. It's just the, the, the distance between... It's the kind of Martin the old years are almost like a foreign country now. Um, yeah. Do you think that there's... I mean, when you look at the, the Conference League... Uh, when you look at the kind of last 16 of the Conference League, I don't think there's a team in there that I wouldn't be confident of Celtic beating. Do you think it's just a case of... I, I, I almost hope when you get the Champions League that we'll finish third so we can go down to the Europa League afterwards. I want the kind of, I want the kind of fun of the, the Champions League, but I don't... I don't want to go into the last 16 and get absolutely fucking battered. I would rather go into the Europa League and just have a, a run, you know? I'd quite like to go into the group stage and um, not get battered, to be honest. So um, you're more ambitious than me. I think that, I think what you need to do is we need to be exposed to European football at that level more often. And I think that was, what, a four-year period where we were in the Champions League. Mm. And I think you can see it set us back. Um, and we often we went in with a team that changed year on year. And I think the hope is, is that we will have here potentially a two or three year period where we are exposed to that level of competition. The likelihood is that we might drop down to Europa League, which I think would be certainly the minimum aim next year and that you can then improve based on that. And um, you, when you talk about budget, the potential for us to kind of um, make strides. And I think that obviously Ajax are often cited, but they spend exorbitant sums of money mm. if we were to make the Champions League continually I'm not saying we would be spending £25 million on a player but if we had that security blanket of knowing that we are going to be there most years I think it would change the ambition potentially of the club um, it's not just obviously transfer fees it's things like wages as well but I think if you can become that landing spot for teams that are players sorry that are young and ambitious, you then have the opportunity to bring in better talent, become a, a place that players are happy to play because although they're playing in the Scottish Premier League, they know that they're going to get exposure to Champions League football for six matches and then possibly more European games. And I think um, 
you know, Europa Conference League, Europa League. I, I would just like to see us progress in Europe. And I, to be honest, I wouldn't turn my nose up at any competition. I don't think any Celtic fan really would. When you mentioned the Conference League there and being confident about playing teams, we need to prove that. We need to actually mm. prove that we can. And there's been too many occasions over the last few years where we've had opportunities, but and we've gone into it and we've just not performed. Um, and that's not Champions League group stage. I'm talking about, you know, conference. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Things like that. But we need to exercise those demons, I think, before we can have any grand ideas about the Champions League. Mm. So Gregory, Gregory Clark has uh, written in, and he's asking what you think from the 2021-22 squad, which players do you think have improved the most this season? Who's plateaued and has anyone regressed? So talking about kind of advancements in the squad, who, who's kind of put the marker down and who's kind of faded away? Um, putting a marker down, I think the two from last year that we had all of last year. Um, uh, do you know what? The two that I think have improved the most, I think Taylor and Hatati. And I think the reason I bring them up is because they're probably both going to be candidates for player of the year. Um, I think Hatati would probably pull away. And I think that is because he's a centre midfielder. I think it's pretty rare for fullbacks to win player of the year. I think, if I remember right, the last one to do it would have probably been the Tierney win it. So I remember Jackie McNamara got it back in the day. Um, Mulgrew won it. Jackie Mike won it as well. As a centre half, potentially for Mulgrew. Mm. Um, So I think think those are the two that have really improved and actually gone up a level. There's a lot of fullbacks that actually win it, so (laughs) maybe maybe I could just fold my point away. The reason (laughs) I know this is because this is part of the quiz I designed for the the end of the show. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I think those two have improved a lot I think there are a few that have plateaued potentially going backwards um, plateaued might be fair up because we are a pretty successful team but I think there's a few guys and I think the one that does stick out is David Turnbull mm. um, I think he's going to be an interesting one over the summer because he's too good not to play but I don't think the club would be keen to, to lose him for a, what, would, what would potentially be a fairly nominal fee so I think his future is quite interesting. We talked about it in a week, a few weeks back. I really don't see the value in selling a player like David Turnbull for three or four million. I just, I think he's, I think he's a real talent. I think he can improve a lot, but I think he needs to play. I would much rather get him a really proper loan move to a team, mm. and then see how he develops. And then if, and then in a year's time, either sell him for more or bring him back and contribute because he might not work under Ange. But the idea that Ange won't be will be a manager for the next five years, say, I think is maybe a little bit folly. So I, I would be reticent just to make your money back in David Turnbull and move on. I think there's too much talent there. I don't, I don't know if you, David Turnbull, what you what you think? I I think what you're saying about loan, it's, it's something we we don't really do. And it's, I was thinking about the way that Tottenham uh, did the CCB thing, where you, you mm-hmm. give him a loan and give him a, a year extension to his contract. And I think that is something you could see happening with Turnbull. I could imagine yeah. going to like a championship team in England and getting a, a role where he is, just someone that can come on, come on and score those kind of long rangers and stuff and giving them the year extension and hopefully we get some money for him. It's just not, I, I think if you have someone like Turnbull who has, I, I've spoken about on the review, he's been, he was an OG, he was an Ange player from the very beginning. Like he was in the Ange first training session and he just hasn't, 
become an Ange player on the field. You know, he just hasn't adapted. I don't think it's going to happen for him at Celtic under Postacoglu. So, uh, yeah, a loan option to buy. Hopefully we get some value out of him because it's just... And I think this is one of the things that when we talk about Champions League money and potentially, see when the club are run a little bit more hand-to-mouth, you do find that right to sell a player, there's a player there you could get four million for. You look at that and think, right, that's good because then that frees up four million for us to do things elsewhere. When you are actually in a a very stable financial position, like the top teams in the world, Mm -hmm. instead of taking taking the quick buck and thinking, right, that clears a player and opens up a space and squad. Instead of that, they think that we'll hang on to that asset, we'll extend the contract for a year and we'll see how high his value can become. And I think that's what you want to do as opposed to take three and a half million, which I'm sure you would get back or there or thereabouts. Actually, can you look at that and build and say, we could become a Scottish international, a regular player. He needs to find the right team, the right setup. This kind of labour-intensive midfield probably isn't for him. Whereas as a number 10 elsewhere, he could go and flourish. I just don't see the value in cashing in just now. When I think down the line, I think there could be more to be had. I think that's what the smart clubs do. And you could think about that. We don't need three and a half million initially. And if you get a team that picks up that wage, gives them first team football for a year, I think you reassess it in a year. And I think he is the one that kind of fits that bill of what you'd like to do. I mean, you think of someone like Bayern with with Tillman. uh, He was nowhere near getting Mm. like getting into the first team on a permanent basis. So they put him in loan at Rangers. Now you're talking about five or six million that the bank could be getting for him. So uh, exactly that kind of of mould. We have another question from from Alan Craig. Two first names. I don't know what you think about Alan. Well, one of them is Alan, so it's it's absolutely fine. He gets a pass this thing. Yeah. Uh, He wants to know about Bernabeu. He's not been in the squad for weeks. Uh, Does he think that he's just going to... Do we think that he's just going to slip back to South America? The caveat for this is I think he's just had a win. uh, So he's probably been uh, out of the team because of that. But what what do you think about Bernabeu in in general? Do you think he's someone that can uh, push on and get that kind of first-team left-back role at Celtic? I think you'd be, I think you'd be ambitious to say that at this point. Um, the outlay on him hasn't really worked out. He's had some really tough games this year. Um, I think obviously, as as you say, at the moment, paternity leave, um, and maybe being a bit more flexible with it because he's not part of the first team plans. If that had been, yeah, a first team starter, I'm not sure you would say take as long as you need. But um, I think there was always going to be a big adjustment period. I think the slight issue with Bernabe is is that we expected a player that was defensively work to do, but was going to be really exciting going forward. I don't think you've seen enough of that to mm-hmm. really justify the questions defensively. Um, and he had some really, really tough games. I think a big moment for him was not being brought on in the derby as well, um, which given, I think it was a week later, his performance a week later, I think we all kind of thought, actually, mm-hmm. even though Juranovic had a tough time, you can see why he never got that game time. So I think it'll be a tough one, but... I don't think he's going anywhere um, anytime soon. It'll be interesting to see in the summer whether Celtic actually think that a left-back is an area that we need to address again because I still think you would like to see real competition in there. I don't think Bernabe's given Taylor real competition. What do you, what do you think of those uh, Juranovic comments about how um, he needs to be first team to get into the, the national team and he wasn't guaranteed that at Celtic? Surely, surely the times that he was kind of rested at Celtic was because of the amount of fixtures that we had. I mean, 
if if Juranovic said to Ange that he was dedicated to Celtic, surely he would be the right back every single week. So yeah, that's disingenuous, is it not? I, I didn't. It didn't add up, um, to be honest, because um, had he not moved on in January, then I think he would have. Would have I think he would be the front runner. Um, and Ange does show a tendency, I think, to stick with players that he trusts and especially players of that level of ability. But I don't think there's any doubt that the club were content to move him on. We're not going to have three right backs um, and two of them really, really talented. That that's just not the way the club works. It just felt it felt to me like it was a good deal all round. Mm. Um, I think the fans were actually, you know, quite happy to see him go. Not in the sense that you know anything else, but Ange had signposted that key players would move on. It looked a good move for him. He's going to a team that's competing for you know the Bundesliga, although I know they're taking a bit of a knock there. Um, they're still in Europe. We get a, a reasonable fee. It felt like a good deal all round. The only person that maybe a little bit disappointed actually was Joseph Juranovic. It mm. just never really added up to me, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's now in Berlin. He can hang out with Callum. I mean, he's in the hipster cent- centre of the world. Yeah. Bad beer, though. Terrible oh, beer. Right. Don't, don't you start now. Let's, <laughs> we've had a nice time here. Let's not ruin it. <laughs> So I want to finish it. So I was going to do a little wee uh, quiz. You've actually got, you've got Start Beer Fest coming up your way. Bye. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's, it's yeah. two, two, the percentages are wild. And the dark beers, I believe. That's all the dark beers. Is that right? Aye. Aye. And it's like 20% volume like and stuff it. like that. So yeah. it'll be bad. It'll be bad. Uh, so I had a wee quiz lined up for you and Kieran. Obviously, Kieran had to drop out. So I'm just going to force it on you. Uh, so you're going to compete against yourself, basically. You're, you're, going to basically you're going to compete against embarrassing yourself, basically. So, as I said, <laughs> so the, the the premise of the quiz was uh, I give you a field and you have to bid against each other who can name the most. For example, the the first one here is a 1970 European Cup final. Twelve players played in it. How many oh, can you goodness. name? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you that one. First of all, I'll, I'll let you warm up to that one. So we'll, we'll start with John Barnes signing. John Barnes signed eight players at Celtic. How many of those players do you think you can name? Mm. Ayo Berkovic. Okay, you need to give me a number first of all. You're not really doing Oh, that. sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, four. Four, okay, right. Let's give me four John Barnes signings. So you give me I.L., Right, Berkovic, Ian Wright. Okay, two so far. Mm. Did he signed Vida Recess. No, that was a uh, big uh, Joe, Doctor Joe. Joe. Uh, uh, you're 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 missing the most obvious John Barnes signing. Uh, Watched him on TV and decided to sign him based on that. Apparently, all the way from South America. Oh, Raphael, the famed Raphael. Yes. Um, he did Steve. a he did a step over against Ray Rovers in the cup. So well, he's immediately did more than Marvin Comper. <laughs> it cost five times more. So I suppose <laughs> you should expect that. Yeah. Um, Chip Fordham, I think three. One with a big clue. <laughs> Another one that he signed to play right back and they uh, didn't settle. Well, he was manager. Ah, uh, Stephen Petrov. Liam Petrov, Stan, there you yeah. go, you got your four. So oh, the other four, Oliver Tebele, Paul Shields, Dimitri Karin, and uh, the the biggest Celtic legend of all time on the huddle board, Stefan Bones. Oh, 
Go, I remember when Dimitri Karen came in because that was an interesting one. That was in a period in which we it was clear that we wanted an improvement in goalkeeper. But over the next seven years, it became the white whale that we could just never address. Um, yeah. Because we, God, we tried. I, the thing that always disconcerted me about Dimitri Karen was the fact he wore joggers. Yeah, like it just didn't. It didn't. It's not good. even the most famous Eastern European goalkeeper to wear joggers. <laughs> Gabor Karali, of course, has that exactly. Uh, Honor. Yeah. Right, I'm not gonna. We'll do one more. I'm not gonna ask you the, the European Cup final, and I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, mm. Though by not asking you, I'm probably embarrassing you. We've uh, had th- yeah, you never know. know. <laughs> We've had 33 goal scorers in the Champions League, and I'm talking about Champions League after the yep. qualifying round. Mm-hmm. Uh, 33 goal scorers. How many can them? Oof, uh, twenty. That's that's um, that's wild. I'll never get twenty. <laughs> but here we go. Go for um, it. Right. Henrik Larsson, Chris Sutton, Liam Miller. Three of the first John, six, well done. John Hartson. Yep. Um, trying to go year by year. Alan Thompson. Mm-hmm. Stelian Petrov. Actually got five of the first six, well done. <laughs> um, is that not six? Ah, but there's someone else that scored in the, the meantime. Ah, right, right okay. Um, Okadok, then skip for quite a bit. Nakamura, mm-hmm. um, Nakamura, Scott McDonald's. Yep. Um, my game's Jan Venegur of Hesselink. What song? Oh, Stan, Ver- Stan Varga. Yep. Um, Maybe think of the, the Brendan season. Yeah. Um, Musa. Did Tierney get the goal against Man City? No, that went no. down as a OG. That's a shame. It was great that day. <laughs> um, who else did we play? And, oh, Lee Griffiths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got that goal against Anderlecht. Back when he was competing with... Uh, back when he was competing with Musa. Okay, what, okay. what a game. Who else did we play... Man City, Anderlecht, and Gladbach. Oh, Callum McGregor? Yep, Bayern. How many, Matt? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Seven more. Seven. Jesus. So, um, think of this tracking era. That might focus you. Nakamura, Hesselink. Think of maybe uh, Shakhtar. Well, Massimo Donati. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you get the other in there? Shakhtar game. Well, I'm going to tap out at this point, Grim. You done? Yeah. Right, so the first one the listeners you... will be excruciated by listening to me <laughs> waffle on as I try and buy time. The first one you missed was a useful harm. So he was the, the fourth Celtic goal scorer in the Champions League. Uh, after that, we have Kenny Miller, Celtic legend Kenny Miller. Uh, Stephen Pearson. I think the other one you were missing against Shakhtar was uh, Yuri Yarisic. Oh, yeah. Great strike as well. Uh, uh, Stephen McManus scored. Aidan McGeady, Barry Robson, Sean Maloney, Gary Hooper, Sammy, of course. Sammy scored several goals for Celtic in the Champions League. Uh, Winyama and Watt against Barcelona. Oh, man alive. <laughs> Chris Commons, uh, Jim Bag, uh, Kyle, Paddy Roberts, uh, Scott Sinclair, Jota, and of course, 
Atlanta's latest signing, Gigi. It's a pressure, Graham. The pressure of being in the chair just gets to you. You wilted like a bit of uh, spinach in a frying pan. Mm. Yeah. So that that's is... another, another, another fine moment <laughs> in the Edgar quiz <laughs> history. There's, there's no prizes. Brian McManus is not here, so there's no prizes anywhere. So one of the one of the things that I looked up for this was the, the, the Celtic players that had won the, the Players' Player of the Year. And uh, since 1977, 23 Celtic players have won it. I think 15 have won it in the last uh, 20, 23 years. So it just shows you, shows you the dominance, absolute dominance of uh, Celtic over the, the, the kind of last 28 years or so. The tide is turning in Celtic's favour, I would say, Graham. Yeah, uh, it, is, it is our time. It is our time. Okay, that will do us for this week. Uh, from me, your host, Graham McKay, it's been an absolute pleasure. Alan, how are you? I've loved it. Thanks very much, Graham. Enjoyed it a lot, and um, hopefully I'll speak to you soon. And uh, Kieran, as we said, had to step out. He would obviously say thank you as well at this stage because he's a polite young boy, <laughs> uh, but he's not here. And we will catch you down the road. <laughs> <laughs>